Now, I want you to listen to me carefully. Unless your faith commitment, unless your righteousness leads to a life that's more giving of itself than Mother Teresa, you can't go to heaven. Now, listen to me carefully. Unless you have, unless your faith produces a burden and an action to reach the loss greater than Billy Graham's, you can never go to heaven. How does that make you feel? I mean, what, I don't know what my reaction is. It says, leave me out. I, I'm not going to do that, right? I mean, it's, you know, I, I love it, but boy, I'm, I'm never going to give my life away as dramatically and consistently and as authentically as Mother Teresa. I, I love reaching people with the gospel, but boy, I, I'm never going to be like Billy Graham. The reaction we have is that leaves all the rest of us out. I got to tell you, when Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he'd done all the Beatitudes, he talked about being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and, and he just reaffirmed his commitment to the Scriptures, and then he looked at the people and he said, unless your righteousness surpasses those, that of the, of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And their reaction would have been just like ours. There's no way. The Pharisees were the undisputed champions of righteousness on the planet. I mean, they were, the, they were in the area, arena of righteousness, the Boston Celtics of the 1960s. They just won over and over and over again. They were put up on a pedestal by everybody in Israel that these are the guys who are righteous. And if I have to be more righteous than them, then the doors of heaven just closed to me. Why did Jesus throw this out to the people? I mean, why, why would he kind of, uh-oh, I'm doomed. Why would he create that? I would tell you I think that Jesus was trying to get these people as a part of the message of the Sermon on the Mount to begin to rethink their understanding of righteousness. I'd love it if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to focus on the final verses of Matthew chapter 5 today, but I'm going to put it in some bigger context. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, and you'll find our text today on page 816 and 817. If you're using your open Bible, and I certainly encourage you to do that, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. If you're using, you'll notice that all of this is in red. In other words, this is Jesus' teaching in what we know today as the Sermon on the Mount. The verse I just quoted from you for you comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness surpasses those that you think are the most righteous ever, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think as Jesus is teaching this, he's, he's trying to get them to rethink righteousness because really all the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to deal with righteousness. It's all going to come out in the terms of relationships. Relationships with other people, relationships with God. It's going to focus on things like adultery and divorce and anger, and, and, and then it's going to get over to prayer and fasting and almsgiving and et cetera. It's all about how do we work out our, our righteousness in terms of relationships. 
But in the midst of that, Jesus is trying to get them to back up, and he's trying to get them throughout this journey to see that the efforts of man to be righteous will always be inadequate. Always will be inadequate. Just take the very first one. You know, um, you know he, said, he talks about murder. Then he goes on in the second one to talk about adultery. In murder, Jesus says, you know what? You've heard it said, do not murder. So as long as you keep from picking up the, the axe and, you know, whatever, you're good. But he says, i got to tell you, if you even get mad at somebody, even for a good reason, you're not qualified to go to heaven. Talks about adultery. Says, you know what? If you just keep yourself limited to staying in bed with your own spouse, you're fine. That's the way they understood it. Jesus says, you even look at somebody else and have even the fleetingest of thought that says, boy, I wonder where... You know, so you violated that. And, and what's dawning on these people over and over, what's dawning on us is, there's no way I can ever do that. Our efforts to be righteous will always be inadequate. We, we can't be more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes. We can't be more righteous than Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. We just can't. In fact, as you go over to Romans, you go to Galatians and Ephesians, some other places, what the Apostle Paul will teach us at God's leading is actually the role of the law was to show us that we really needed a Savior. And so in this rethinking, of righteousness, what Paul is, what what Jesus is trying to give, I want you to recognize that you can't do this on your own. And so, with that, he he's actually setting the context that's going to be fulfilled throughout his life and proclaimed through the church is that what you really need, and I'm going to use a, a theological term here, but I think you can get the idea pretty quickly. He says, what you need is a relation is a righteousness that is a positional righteousness. You know, if you're filling out your right lines, that's the first piece. You need a positional righteousness. We, in and of ourselves, are inadequate and incapable of being righteous enough for God. So what he says you need to do is you need to have a Savior. If you go through the New Testament and you just underline the word in Christ, in Christ, those two words over and over, you'll see it over and over and over and over again. It is by our faith that we become in, positionally positioned in Christ. So his righteousness covers us. That's why we are so committed to reaching people, why we are constantly inviting all who are a part of our, our church who check us out for worship or whatever, the people that we're always encouraging to engage with your friends, is that unless they are in Christ, they, are, they do not enjoy that positional righteousness. They don't, aren't covered by the righteousness of Christ and they're only dependent upon their own efforts. And those are always inadequate in the eyes of God. So Jesus is starting to lay the foundation to get us to rethink righteousness. It's not something that we do on our own. It's something that we need from God provided. And that happens to, and, it, and very simply and clearly, that happens between, as a result of our acknowledgement of our need for God to grant us his righteousness recognizing that's what God's done for us in Jesus Christ through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. And by our choice, our free choice, not a choice that somebody makes for, for me or anything, but my free choice, I choose to become a follower of Jesus Christ and to place my faith in him. 
But in the midst of all of this, and I know this has been pretty heavy up front. I'm going to kind of pull it back into context for us. He's also trying to challenge us to what theologians call progressive sanctification. Okay, we, we may be in Christ, and so when Jesus looks at me, right, when God looks at me right now, what he sees is Jesus. Because I'm in Christ. Because of my faith in Christ. So positionally, I am 100% completely righteous, and that'll never change because of what Christ has done. But he's also a call for us to become more and more like Christ. And there's this progression, and, and these passages that flow through Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, lay out the ways in which you and I can be growing in our righteousness in Christ. Now, how does this all fit into what we've been talking about? You know, we, we've been kind of using the, the month of January as kind of a time to do a little bit of a spiritual checkup, right? You know, we, we started out by, we're asking the question, can God really trust us? We spent all of December basically laying out why it is that we can trust God. Because he's faithful, he's sovereign, loving, all those kinds of wonderful things. And, and God simply continues to ask us, place your life in my hands and to walk with him. But now as we turn the corner, we're asking, well, can God really trust us? Or in another way, saying, is our faith really on course? Am I healthy, you know? You know we, we, and so we've been coming back to this passage, and we've been kind of asking ourselves, uh, we, so we're in a season where we're asking ourselves a question, can God trust us? Is our life on course spiritually? We started out with the first week talking about just a sense of life stewardship. What? Well, what we need to recognize is that everything in our lives, our possessions, our money, everything we do, our opportunities, our time, everything, are we in a position where we recognize that God's given us all of that so we can somehow bring him glory? Not to bring us pleasure, like we need God to give us more so that we can be happy and content, but God's given us all of that stuff so we can bring him glory. We can add to the bottom line of his kingdom. The life issue of life stewardship is at our orientation. Last week you heard about prayer from George. Today, I want to talk about relationships. Because I think out of this context, you'll see that everything about righteousness is about relationships. It's all about relationships. Anger, it's a relational thing, right? Adultery, that's a relationship. Divorce, that's a relational thing. All right on down the line, it's all about relationships. And we come today to the passage I want to focus on because I think in some ways this is the hardest, but it's the most ignored of the challenges that God has given us from the Sermon on the Mount. Just follow along in your Bibles as I read verses 43 through 48 for us. I mean, we, we, we struggle with the whole murder and anger thing and et cetera, that deal drugs with peace and lust and et cetera, with divorce, we, but being truthful and, you know, what do we do? But with, with this whole idea of, of being oppressed or whatever it, it, in, in verse 38. But you get down to the end and Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. It's a quote of Leviticus. And hate your enemy. You don't ever actually see that terminology in the Old Testament. But he says, you've heard it said. It's been taught to you that you're supposed to love your neighbor and it's okay to hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, 
What reward will we have? Don't, don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? So he says, be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That sounds easy, right? Let's unpack this just a little bit. First of all, let, let's, the, accept, the accepted norm of the day. In other words, it doesn't really matter what the Bible is, but this is just the way everybody lived it and it was accepted and this is the way you present it, was that, you know what, you love your neighbor and it's okay to hate your enemies. They're defined here in this passage as tax collectors. These are the Jews who had become traitors and were collaborating with the oppressors against God's will and taking in tax revenue for Rome. And then there were the Gentiles. These were all the God-haters. These were, and, so, and they just, you know what? You were free to hate these people. That was the accepted norm. You know? And so, and they went back and they looked at the Old Testament. And they said, you know what? This is what it's there. You can see this. We can see the whole love your neighbor piece. We'll do that. That's the people I like, right? All the other stuff, we can see. What, and they drew this conclusion, it's all right to hate your enemy. And that was the accepted norm. Here's, here's the way I think we, we pulled this into the, to the New Testament church. We understand we're supposed to love our neighbors. So we're committed to caring for one another. And for the most part, our accepted norm is, is we'll just avoid our enemies. As long as we're not in open conflict with them, we're okay, you know. But that's the accepted norm. But Jesus steps into that gap, and he teaches a new ethic. He says we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Now, I'll let you self-define your enemies. Probably come in all shapes and sizes, from the workplace to families to neighborhoods to, to things that are going on worldwide. There, there are all kinds of ways to define your enemies. But he says, supposed to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The, the thing I want you to see out of this is that these are, in the, these are present imperative. These are commands that compel action. This is not just a feeling, but it's, it's, a, it's a way of life, an acted-out passion from you outwards. So it's not just a matter of saying, well, you know, I, I love those. who," But it's actually putting that in, put it, putting feet to it and moving forward and doing things actively. And this word love here is, is the agape word that, that is in the New Testament, and it has the idea of this is a, it's a warm, sincere, authentic, caring, self-sacrificing, costly love for other people. And so his new ethic that he teaches is that you and I are to love our enemies and we're supposed to pray for those who are trying to make our lives worse. Pretty active stuff. He tells us why in this text. Gives us a couple of reasons. He says, first of all, the rationale then that's the R that you're looking for in the outline. The rationale is, first of all, he wants us to be like the Father. Look what it says here. He says, I want you to love your enemies, verse 44, and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father. So you can be like God. Why? Because God causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends his reign on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Says if you look at the way God does love, God cares for the faithful as well as the felons. 
You know what I mean? He, he cares for the devoted as well as the depraved. You know, in fact, the Israelites had often benefited by the fact that God's grace was supplied to all because they would leave Israel and go to Egypt or other places where there were food in the times of famine because God was, was ministering to everyone. He says, this is the way God works, and you're supposed to be like God. That's the very definition of being righteous, right? And he said, and with that, in order to be like God, you need to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the way God does stuff. The other rationale is, if you don't do this, you're no different than the world. Keep reading along in this text. It says, you know, he, God, he's already challenged them earlier in Matthew chapter 5. This is heavy sledding, but hold in there for, with me for a minute. He's already challenged them. He said, I want you to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. In order for your light to shine, you've got to have a light. You've got to be different than the world. And he says, what, you know, listen, he says, if, if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? He says, you know, even the tax collectors do that. You know those people that you see as being on the bottom of your shoe in your own culture? They love their own people. Well, and if that's all you're going to do, then, then how is it that you reflect that God's had an impact on your life at all? And then you take the Gentiles, you see them as being heathens, like subhuman, and, and they even greet and care for and minister and serve one another. You know, I mean, we could look at our own cultures. You know, we could look at some places that are, I mean, let's just take the gang culture. And we look at them and we say, it just is so vile to us. But they even have a code of ethic and a code of relationship to one another, right? I mean, if if we're just going to love those who love us, if we're just going to love those that we like, then what difference are 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 we than they? He says, so the reason that you need to be like God the rationale for this new ethic is to be like God and to be different from the world. It also leads to you fulfilling God's purpose for your life. Be ye perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Th- this word perfect isn't the idea of, of perfection in the sense of the best, but it has the idea of, of competency in it. In other words, that be perfect in the sense that you're able to perform the function the purpose for which God created you for. Like a a parachute might come in all different shapes and sizes, but if you jump out of a plane and it deploys and it lands you safely on the ground, that parachute is perfect, right? Because it's performed its function. God's function for us, his intent for us, is to represent his love in the world. And if you and I get to a place where we can truly love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, we, we can fulfill that role. So where are the diagnostic questions for us about loving our enemies? And, and how, do, how, does this, how, how should we be looking at our relationships? And, and, and i got to tell you, I think the thing that you and I need to be looking at is our attitudes. Our attitudes. You know, our attitudes are the inner roots that always produce outer fruit. Well, that kind of rhymed, didn't it? Yeah. I didn't mean for that to be that way. Attitudes are the inner roots that always produce outward fruit. Now, I think there's two attitudes that we need to really look at. If we're going to ask ourselves the question, can God really trust us? Am I, am I really sincere and faithful 
and being the person that God wants me to be. The first one, I really think you have to look at your attitude towards yourself or ourselves. We need to look at our attitudes towards ourselves. What do you mean, Neil? Let me ask you the question. What does it take to be able to love your enemies? I mean, truly love your enemies. Not just in a moment of, of adrenaline, spiritual adrenaline rush, be able to do something compassionate towards somebody who's hurt you or whatever, but I mean just the orientation of your life 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, year in and year out to be able to love your enemies. What, what does it take? Well, let me tell you what it takes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip over to, to Galatians chapter 5. Paul here is talking about this battle that's going on inside of us. We're constantly making the choices whether we're going to live our lives by the flesh our way of doing things, or we're going to live our lives according to God's way, which is walking by the Spirit, surrendering to His leadership in our lives. And he talks about the ways that we can see the differences. Now look at, he starts out in verse 19. I, I want to I pick up in the middle of verse 20. It says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. That's the beginning of verse 19. We'll skip the other ones. And he says, beginning of, middle of verse 20. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Hatreds, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy. Sound like you can love your neighbor? Not. Pick up in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, it's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faith, gentleness, self-control. Think you can love your neighbor if you got those things? I mean, think you can love your enemies? Think you can pray for those who persecute you if you are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faith, gentleness, maybe the most important of all, self-control? How does that happen? Where we move from the works of the flesh to following the fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So here's the attitude. What's our attitude? on the inside about ourselves? Is it that I'm dead? I, I've died to self, and I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus? That, boy, you know what? I'm just so grateful that, that my life is available for God to use all the time. Or is it that life is really kind of about us? I deserve better. I should be protected. I should be cared for. All those kinds of things. What is our attitude about ourselves? Have we really died to self? Or are we kind of just managing the self that we're trying to live? See, you and I, we cannot fulfill God's purpose for our lives. We can't be perfect if life is about us instead of life about God. Now, sometimes you look at it and say, well, you know, you got that figured out, Pat. I I, I, this is an ongoing work for me, too. This is the progressive part. But this is a challenge for us. Jesus said, what's your attitude about yourself? That somehow or another that this God owes me and, and it should be easier and et cetera, or is it, you know what? I'm his. Come hell or high water, I'm his. The second thing is I think we really need to look at our attitude related to God's commandments. 
That's what the whole struggle was in the Sermon on the Mount. Taking all these truths, etc. What Jesus is trying to get them to do, and, and, and listen, out of my client, I, I think a lot of us, we, we, look at, we look at the commandments of God as God's attempt to limit our freedom, God's attempt to limit our fun, our happiness. That's the way we look at a lot of God's commands. God just wants stuff out of me. It's like, you know, it's, it's his honey-do list for me. You know, if I get it done, I can get on with my life. That's, that's not, God is trying to set us free. And with that, our attitude, our, our, our perspective on the commandments of God, not, shouldn't be just say, have I fulfilled the letter of the law? I haven't murdered anybody today. But have I really become the spirit of the law? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not just about the fact that I've restricted my anger enough that I haven't taken you out, but it's that I have a godly compassion for you that influences the way that I relate to you, even in the most difficult of moments. It's the spirit of the law. The spirit of the command about thou shalt not commit adultery, it's not just about keeping yourself out of somebody else's bed. It's about inner purity. That's the spirit of it. But do we want to embrace that attitude and just live with the surface letter of the law, or are we going to embrace God's desire for us to experience him inside out by embracing the spirit of the law? See, I, I think there's a huge attitude adjustment that we need to check. What, what it really is our attitude about ourselves? Are we seeing our lives through our eyes or through God's eyes? And we need to be looking at our attitude towards God's commandments. Just what God wants for us. So the question I think that confronts us as we are having this kind of spiritual checkup at the beginning of 2014 really is, is, is what attitude adjustment do we need? Some of us, we need the ad, attitude change of, of positional righteousness. Placing ourselves for the very first time into the person of Christ by faith. Other of us need to begin to see that life is about God, not about us. And we need to understand that God's commands are to set us free, not to hold us back. Let's pray together. Boy, Father, you couldn't really be more challenging to us than the challenge to love our enemies in the same way that you do, in the same way that we love those who are closest and most precious to us. What a revelation for all the change that needs to go on on the inside for us to have a sustained burden to pray for those whose mission is to harm us in whatever way. God, we want to be vessels that you can use. We want your light to shine through us. Father, show us what our true attitude is about ourselves and about you and about your word. God, that we, in truth, in truth, might be a congregation, might be people 
that you can trust. We pray it in Jesus' name.